0: Man, what a wonderful thing today during worship to have Julia read the text today from Revelation and uh, to have uh, Eli on the drums, a 12-year-old, to have my son Russell, a 12-year-old, playing worship with us and Julia, 15, 14 years old, worshiping with us and uh, and to have that text (coughs) uh, before us today. Uh, Today, we open up the word in Revelation chapter one, verse three, or rather it's chapter two, verse one, but I want to be reminded of chapter one, verse three, where it says blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near, you know, there's, there is a, there's a uh, there are two uh, parallel roads when you study the Revelation. And, and one is one opposite extreme where it's, uh, we just don't go to the book of Revelation. It's too scary. No one can interpret it or understand it. So we just don't even read it. You know. Uh, then the other end is, yeah, we're, we're actually going to not read it by reading it. We're not even going to read what's written. And we're just going to go ahead and throw in all of our strange and odd end times weird mumbo-jumbo prophecies that really have no basis from the Bible, and so both sides are bad, okay? So we want to read the book and hear the book and expound the book, uh, and, and we will be blessed by this book as we keep this book. And so that's really one of our goals as we go through Revelation because, in fact, this book testifies that it has been given To bless us. And so in chapter 1 verse 19. If you have your Bible open. We have uh, as we've studied chapter 1. We have what's given us. called What is is given to us is called the divine outline. The divine outline. Many scholars have dubbed it. uh, Because it gives us a breakdown of the book. Where it says. uh, Jesus says to John. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And so it's really a a three-point book. Number one, the things which you have seen. And I believe that that's chapter one. You know, John the Revelator wrote the Gospel of John, first, second, and third John, and then the book of Revelation. And he was always just so thrilled that he was an eyewitness of the glory of Jesus. He starts out, John 1 with that. He starts out first John 1 with that. I was an eyewitness. And in chapter 1, Jesus reveals himself in his resurrected glory, his ascended glory to John. And, and he sees Jesus yet again. And so I personally believe, and it's interesting the more studying I do, even study Bibles and, and, uh, and software will uh, begin to point to there's a breakdown here really of the book. The things that you have seen. John has seen Jesus. Secondly, the things which are. The things which are. And and, uh, I believe that that's speaking of chapters 2 and 3. As we're getting into today, the churches, the letter to the churches. John will be writing and was a part of the church age. And it's interesting. We're not going to make more of this than, than what should be there, nor be dogmatic on it. It's interesting as I've studied Revelation and, and seen an interesting thing that each of the seven churches that have letters written to them in chapters two and three are an interesting snapshot of different ages within, within the church uh, and, and church history. It's kind of a panoramic picture of church history. And so, you know, you can take that for what you want. Uh, I find it to be interesting and fascinating. We'll look at that a little bit, but not dogmatically, and, and you can take it or leave it, all right? Um, but uh, what's interesting is the things which are, we are living in the church age. And John will write seven churches from Jesus, uh, seven letters from Jesus to seven churches. and uh, And at the end of that, you have chapter four, verse one, where after these things... I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking to me saying, come up here, come up here. And I will show you things which must take place after this. So the third point of uh, the book of Revelation are the things which will take place after this. After the church age, after chapters 2 and 3, after something that happened where a door is open in heaven, a voice of a trumpet, the voice of Jesus says, come up here. And then we have chapters 6 through 22 of things that take place after a come up here moment, okay? Uh, And so um, that's a bit of an outline. That is a bit of a divine outline as we get into the book. Now... Later on in chapter 1 it says the mystery of the seven golden lampstands. Woo, right? Uh we read about the lampstands earlier on in chapter 1 that Jesus was standing in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. There's a mystery. What are these things? The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And you'll remember when he saw Jesus, he saw Jesus holding in his right hand seven stars. What are those seven stars? The Bible is so hard to understand. Keep reading the Bible. It will explain itself. As it says that those seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And those seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. So those that are intimidated by imagery and think that this is too hard to understand, don't worry. The Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. Many things, many answers can be found as you search the scriptures and dive in. Um, There are some mysteries that we'll never know until we see Jesus face to face, but many things have been given to be a blessing to us. And I don't think that the point of revelation is to just make us confused and divide churches over it. Um, and so we see here, Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands. Those are the churches, and he holds the se- seven angels in his hand. We're going to read of these angels in every letter to the churches, that it's going to be addressed to the angel of the church. A couple quick interpretations or understanding of the angels. Could literally be some kind of guardian angel over the church. Uh, <clears throat> another Greek dictionary translates it messenger to the messenger of the church of Ephesus or to the pastor of the church of Ephesus. So some people out there, it's an angel. Some people, uh, you know, it's, uh, um, some messenger or it's a pastor. Uh, and so <clears throat> you can, uh, you know, it's not a huge thing either way. Um, but there is someone responsible for delivering the message to, um, the churches. And we also see that uh, these lampstands are a wonderful symbol as Jesus has told us that we are the light of the world and that we shine as lights in this world. And as we shine our light by our good works, we glorify our Father who is in heaven. So what a wonderful thing today to be known by Jesus as a lampstand in Prineville, shining and glorifying Him, in Prineville, in Crook County, in the world, with our good works. And so that's just kind of leading into uh, this chapter, chapter 2, which begins seven letters to seven churches. The first one going to um, the church in Ephesus. Let's look at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So this letter is addressed to a messenger, an angel, or a pastor, and he's within the city of Ephesus. He's over and responsible for this church in a city uh, called Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus is no new city name for us. We're familiar with Ephesus as we read Acts chapters 18, 19, and 20. There's an epistle called Ephesians that is written to this church. Really cool thing, you know, uh, to kind of be putting puzzle pieces together. Oh, this is who the book of Ephesians is written to. Uh, We have some pictures of where Ephesus and the other seven churches are located. uh, But it is situated on the Aegean Sea. It's a beautiful city. It was a magnificent city of its day. It had a giant harbor that was able to bring in all of the seafaring vessels, the titanics of its day. Interesting that in Ephesus, uh, there was this giant temple of, uh, towards the goddess of fertility known as Diana or Artemis. And most of the city had some involvement with the worship towards that goddess. She was a very sexual goddess. It was, a um, you know, most of the people in the community had been, at some point, a prostitute uh, within that temple and was a part of that worship. Uh, And most of the people in the city made some sort of income or money through buying or selling uh, for that type of worship. And many, as you read the book of Acts, were artisans and would make idols out of silver or pearl or marble. And, uh, and many would come and sail into this harbor and then go and worship at the shrine in the uh, giant temple there that you have an image of in front of you uh, there in Ephesus. Church tradition tells us that Timothy became the pastor in Ephesus after Aquila and Priscilla planted the church and Apollos ministered there, Paul ministered there, Timothy would be a pastor in Ephesus, and then John would be a pastor in Ephesus, which is where he was arrested by the Emperor Domitian, and then he was then exiled onto the island of Patmos. It's interesting as we get into these letters to the churches that each city's name relates to its character. And we'll see that as the weeks go on, but here with Ephesus, uh, the name Ephesus literally is translated darling, darling. And if you were to take a panoramic snapshot of church history, Ephesus, some scholars would say and studies show some application from these churches, is that Ephesus represents the first century church in her darling stage around the age of 33 AD to 100 AD, that period in church history. And Ephesus was kind of that representation of early church romantic love with Jesus. There, that church nestled into that supreme metropolis. That church nestled in the gateway of Asia. That church that was planted among, in amongst so much Paganism and immorality, and yet begin to thrive and grow and love Jesus. It was there in Ephesus that not only did Aquila and Priscilla begin the church with Paul, but disciples of John the Baptist were saved in Acts 19 and were baptized with the Holy Spirit. It was in Ephesus where Paul spoke boldly. Uh, within the synagogue of the Jews for three months, where he would reason and persuade concerning things of the kingdom of God until some rose up against him and were hardened. So Paul went to the school of Tyrannus and preached there and taught there for two years. When Paul came on the scene in the city of Ephesus, the city was highly impacted. The city was, in a sense, turned upside down. Within the course of a few years, it says in the book of Acts that all of Asia heard the word of God through the ministry of Paul in Ephesus. It was there that many uh, magicians and sorcerers and even Jewish exorcists were casting out demons and trying to cast out demons because they saw the miracles of the apostles. And there were some Jewish exorcists called the seven sons of Sceva. Try saying that five times fast. The seven sons of Sceva heard and watched and heard through the grapevine and saw that, hey, when people are praying for demon-possessed folks and they use the name of Jesus, demons are going out of them. Hey, so let's try that. Bibbidi-bobbidi-boo, right? And so as they would come and bring the uh, demon-possessed folks, it says that these seven sons of Sceva cried out, in the name of this Jesus whom Paul preaches, we cast you out. And they got a little backtalk from the demons that said, hey, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And it says that the demons jumped upon the seven sons of Sceva, beat them up, ripped their clothes off of them, and they had to run away from them. And such a crazy thing brought great fear upon the civilians there in uh, Ephesus. And many people turned to follow Jesus because of that strange happening. And it says that many people came and brought their witchcraft and sorcery books and manuals and began to pile them up within the city. And when you counted up the value of all of those sources of witchcraft and sorcery, it totaled to be about 50,000 pieces of silver in that day. And it's what we call the revival in Ephesus where the gospel was having such an impact and the Holy Spirit was moving so mightily that people knew what the truth was and they knew what was wicked and they just threw it in the fire. And it says at the end of Acts chapter 19 and verse 20 that the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. What was the result of people confessing their sin and burning the things they were in bondage to? The word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. It's been said at that point for Ephesus, the church was around long enough to grow strong and long enough to grow stale. And that's what happens as we read this letter to the church of Ephesus. They were a well-established church. They had a great history. They had a great past. They had a great heritage. They were along, around long enough to grow strong. But like so many of us, man, we could be around long enough to grow Stale. It says there in verse 2, Jesus is going to begin this letter with some great, good, commendable things to speak into the church of Ephesus. He says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. So Jesus looks at this church, this darling church in her first century state and says, Hey, I know what's going on. I'm walking in the midst of the lampstands. I walk in the midst of the churches. And as I'm in your midst, I know your deeds. And he has good and great commendable things to say about these deeds. The Psalms say in one six that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And he knew the Ephesians way. He knew that they were patient in duty. They were patient indeed. They understood the words in the sermon on the mount. About our works shining. And glorifying the father in heaven. They remembered the epistle of the apostle Paul. That right after he said in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. He goes on to say, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It seems pretty obvious that the Ephesians read the book of Ephesians and said, if this is for anybody, this is for us, <laughs> okay? going to read it in a couple thousand years, but we got it first, Okay. They probably had it memorized, all right? And when they did, they knew that we are his workmanship. Let's get busy. Let's get serving the Lord. That's a good thing. And they were obedient. They were walking in those works. No one could fault the Ephesians for being lazy or for no work. They were patient in their labor. Even when others were being driven away by persecution, the early Ephesians Kept on keeping on. They labored. It speaks of laborious toil. They broke a sweat for Jesus. They got calluses on their hands for Jesus. They were patient, which speaks of steadfast endurance and perseverance. Part of all of this, it says, is that they could not bear those who were evil. They were patient, but they had no patience for evil people or false teachers. There's something we can learn from that. Amen. They were pure in their doctrine. They didn't play fast and loose with doctrine. They didn't let people claim whatever they wanted and say whatever they wanted and throw a slap a label of truth on it. No, there was a truth and it was objective, not relative to culture. They remembered Paul's final words to them in Acts chapter 20, where he said that savage wolves would come. It says, therefore take heed to yourselves and do all the flock. He's speaking this to the pastors over uh, Ephesus, among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. They knew that, they believed that, and they weren't letting any of those savage wolves in. After the seven sons of Sceva incident, and all the burning of the witchcraft material, and the persecution, and the riot that you read about in in, uh, Acts chapter 19, they just had no toleration for evil stuff within their church, and that's one thing that Jesus just slow claps for them. You know, he's like, well done, Ephesus. Well done. With that, they have tested those who were apostles and were not. And the Ephesians found those guys liars. They were discerning. If anyone came and said, hey, this is blessed. It's come. It's been manifest. And they would say, well, then bring it on over and let's test it. Because if you got nothing to be afraid of, you shouldn't be afraid of bringing it over to the word of God. And we're going to test it. They were much like the church we read of in Acts chapter 17 verse 11. The Bereans. Where it says that those individuals were fair minded. And they, whenever they would receive something, it says in Acts 17 11. They would search the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So they were discerning, they would test things. They were obedient to John in 1 John 4 1. Don't believe every spirit that's out there, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. We know from the Bible, from the scriptures, from the apostles that it's not everything goes. There is a way, there is a truth, there is a life, and no one comes to the father except through Jesus. So if anyone would come in bringing anything else, that dog don't hunt in the early church. And that is something that we strive for here in the, uh, what are we in the 21st century? I don't know. Or even 19th century. 20th? Okay, whatever you did the math. Okay. He also commends them in verse three by saying, and you've persevered and you have patience and if you've, you've labored for my namesake and have not become weary, there's perseverance, there's endurance. Well done, church, in your steadfastness. In the midst of persecution, as I've studied this time through, I think I've read more than ever in all my other Revelation studies, how timely the book of Revelation was for the church of John's day. They were going through so much persecution That this comforting word through Jesus saying, hey, I'm walking in the midst of you, persecuted church. I know what's going on. Don't lose heart. Keep persecuting. The historian Tertullian said of the persecution that the churches faced in his day, if the tide rises too high or the Nile drops too low, the Christians go to the lions. That's what it was like living in that day. Too hot. Too much of a drought, crops aren't growing, not enough water, send the Christians to the lions. That's what the early church was living in. They faced special challenges. They were much like the Jews in Berlin in the 1930s. Ostracized. And yet they persevered in truth and they did not compromise. Jesus says, you've labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. You've toiled. The interesting thing is, uh, this phrase, you've labored for my name's sake, speaks of growing weary, and yet you've not become weary. And that's the ministry. That's living for Jesus. That's laboring for Jesus. We spend all of our reserves, and yet we're connected to the source of life and power. We just don't grow weary. We continue. as He says in Galatians 6, 9, the apostle Paul, let us not grow weary while we're doing good. For in due season we shall reap a harvest if we do not lose heart. The Ephesians had toiled to the point of exhaustion. They were patiently bearing the hostility of a society against them, and yet they kept going. And isn't it neat to read Jesus give the good news to a church and just applaud them and say, well done, Many of you have probably taken leadership classes and how to win friends and influence people. And whenever you have to drop a little bit of a bomb of correction on someone, you start out like an Oreo cookie with a nice cookie cracker, you know? Like, hey, good job. You're doing just so good, you know? And just hold on for a minute. There's this going on. And it's not good, man. It's not good. It's not good. And then at the end, like, oh, but this is good too. So, you know, good, good, not so good. Let's work on this part, Okay. A little bit what Jesus does here. And so here we're in the middle set. We're moving on. Okay. Look at verse four where we have the correction. Okay. First they received commendation. Now they're going to receive a little bit of condemnation and look in verse four. Nevertheless, on the other hand, I have this against you. What could it be? I mean, seriously, what could Jesus have against a church? That's just like, man, they are walking in purity, they're walking in truth, they hate things that are evil. What? I mean, come on, Jesus. like, Be gracious, huh? What could it possibly be? Well, here's what it is, you guys. That you have left your first love. Oh, that, that hits the heart, doesn't it? All of this great laboring and toiling and patience and perseverance, and you're taking a licking and keeping on ticking, And but you don't even love me anymore. The ESV version says you've abandoned your first love. The NIV says you have forsaken the love that you had at first. The problem here is a problem of desertion despite all of the positive attributes of the church in Ephesus prepared to do anything to stay on course, decay had crept in to their devotion. They didn't lose their first love. They left their first love. One paraphrase of Jesus's letter to the Ephesians was revealed to us prophetically in 1964 By the righteous brothers when they said, you've lost that love and feeling. Whoa. You never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips. Ephesians, you know. There's no tenderness. Okay. Thank you, righteous brothers, for being open to the gift of prophecy today. They had all the motion, yet they lacked emotion. They didn't have a head problem. They had doctrine down. They had a heart problem. And I'm telling you this this is, I don't know, I'm like 22 years in ministry. Thursday was my 10 year anniversary moving to Prineville. So that's so exciting. That is like thrilling. Some of you are like, okay. And I'm just telling you, it is so easy as a pastor, as someone who's paid to do this, you can just get into routine and just get stuff done, get your task list going, stand up for truth, go on missions trips, and just quit loving Jesus. It happens. It is so good to be in Revelation chapter 2, guys. I just feel like the fires and the... The fires have been stoked in my heart for Jesus. I just want to love Jesus. I remember when I was a junior year in high school, we had to tell something about ourselves to uh, my personal finance class. And I said, this last year, I fell in love with Jesus. And I remember my personal finance teacher going, that is so stupid. Do you realize how ridiculous you sound in front front of all of your peers? (laughs) You don't have an Adam's apple like this. And worry about looking or sounding ridiculous. That ship has sailed. (laughs) I'm in love with Jesus. You guys know Fred's testimony? Fred, right there. You get your hand up, boy. Yeah, Fred's testimony. Raised Catholic. Wants to be a cowboy. He's in France. Raised Catholic in France. Wants to be a cowboy. Moves to... Oregon to be a buckaroo goes to a horse clinic where a friend of mine begins to share the gospel with him. And they begin to ask about, do you have a relationship with Jesus? And for Fred, that was the first time in his entire life he'd ever heard about a relationship with Jesus. And you know that that was what Jesus has bought and paid for, for us, a relationship, a loving feeling with Jesus. Do you have that today? Do you love Jesus? Jesus always wants your love for him to be the first love. The rebuke wasn't that they weren't hardworking, not prepared to do things, not that they didn't show up at church work days or host home groups or have multiple ministries, even going on effectively within their church. The rebuke was that the joy was gone. The life was gone. The meaning was gone. The purpose was gone. The vision was gone. The heartbeat was gone. Realizing that you're going through the motions, you're just involved in a routine. Oh, you know. First Sunday of the month is pulse prayer, so you know, I guess we do that because it's the first Sunday of the month. Who third Sunday of the month is pulse prayer? It's not the third Sunday of the month, so we don't pray at all. Um, this, that, you know, it's like, well, we just we, you know, home groups are the second and fourth Sunday of the month. We don't go to home groups if it's not a second or a fourth Sunday of the month, and also we don't gather unless it, you know. It's like, oh gosh, you are a little bit too strict on your Google Calendar. Let's just tone it back a little bit and love Jesus. You may be in ministry, you may be orthodox in your belief, have a statement of faith, but you are ice cold because you've forsaken your first love. Ah, the church, it began with spontaneity, spontaneity, zeal, fervor, longing for God, longing to be in his word. It used to have some heart. And now we're concerned about work, zeal, persecution that's happening, the agenda of the world and all that's getting shoved down our throat, we don't even love Jesus in the midst of it. Osborne writes that the Ephesians had lost their first flush of enthusiasm and excitement in their Christian life and they'd settled into a cold orthodoxy with more surface strength than death. What a word for us as a church. We desire depth where roots go down deep. Jesus says, I will not be staying in a place that doesn't have love, even though it has everything else. Jeremiah says, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, When you went after me in the wilderness, I remember those sweet, sweet times. We're not just talking about merely emotional feelings. Boy, I haven't cried in a while. Forget that. Okay? We're talking about obedience to Jesus. The words of Jesus are this. If you love me, keep my commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he's the one that loves me. And he who loves me is loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will show up to him, is what Jesus says. So examine your heart as an individual. Examine your place of devotion. Examine your joy in the word. Examine your commitment to prayer. Examine your attendance at prayer. Have you become flippant with your Bible and flippant with the worship songs and flippant in witnessing and flippant flippant worshiping? You only come if you feel like it, and if you don't, you don't. I just would submit to you, you need a fresh love for Jesus. You just just need to love him. You need to see him in revelation and love that God-man. Jesus tells us that in the end times, because lawlessness will abound, that the love of many will grow cold. We see the lawlessness. What's our climate of love here at Calvary? It's nice to have first love memories, isn't it? Let me think about Lindsay for a minute. So you may not know this, but Lindsay and I grew up in Climba Falls together. We were probably in nursery together at Bible Baptist Church in Clima Falls, Oregon. Her mom changed my diaper. Okay? <laughs> Fun memories. And and it wasn't until... like We moved away and stuff, and it wasn't until after college that we started dating. I saw her in high school and thought she was really pretty, but uh, she kind of had another guy she was talking about, and I had another girl on my mind, you know, and then we went away. And then later on... And, college after my freshman year, I saw Lindsay at a graduation and she was looking good, okay? Man, I remember the dress. Man, I just, so beautiful. And I just remember, you know, we talked a little bit and I remember being like, how can I meet her again? How can I be around her, you know? And after my dad passed away, she wrote me a letter and I'd been thinking about her. I was working for the Forest Service and I was walking through the forest. I was just thinking about her. I was like, how can I like find out her phone number? How can I get in touch with her? Can I, I call her dad, who also changed my diaper, and be like, hey, it's me. You know, what's Lindsay doing, you know? And, and one day I was thinking about her, and I pull up after getting off work, and there was a card in the mail saying how sorry she was that my dad passed away and that she was going to be cheerleading at Oregon State in Corvallis. And I was like, okay, dad just died. Should I stay home and take a mom or go to school? In that moment, I was like, I'm going to Corvallis. I'm going to college, everybody. <laughs> Immediately get to, I mean, I left that day. We went, I went to college. <laughs> go to college and call her right away and set up a time to go to church with her and go get ice cream with her. And we're hanging out. And I find out she hangs out with lots of guys. <laughs> and later on, when I told her how I felt about her, she was like, oh, I'm sort of seeing somebody else right now, but don't worry about that. We'll work that out and we'll work our way back over here to you. And she did. She did that. And I was so Twitter-pated to use a Bambi word, with her that I would tell everyone about her. I told my cousin about her. And one day my cousin was visiting me from out of town and I was like, hey, I um, want to drive by her house <laughs> And I remember him going, You can't do that, man. Um, That's like stalkerish. I know, I know. I was just saying we should drive by our house. And uh, like after I told her how I felt about her, I mean we just it it just went I mean we were married within six months. Like I was like, I want that girl. I want that girl. And I'm not messing around. No one else is getting her. We're doing this thing. So note to all of you out there, just get her done, okay? Just get married, right? I just remember driving away from Christmas at her house like, Lord, I'm I'm going to marry her, so if you don't want me to, you've got to, like, stop this. And I spent time fasting and praying before I proposed, but, oh, my goodness. And those of you that are married, like, you remember it? You remember first love? You remember just, like, first time I kissed her literally, like, Two hours of staring at her face, leaning in, and then not, and then finally just doing it, and she was like, What is your problem? You know. <laughs> but you know, you're just like, Oh. And you come home and you check the message machine, and there's her little sweet, gravelly voice on there, you know. And then you call and leave a message, and you're like, Hey, I went outside real quick, and I just was wondering if you you know, hey, oh, thought I heard something. <laughs> you tell that there? Okay. You know. And the first year of marriage, and just the smells, and just the, you know, just ah. Okay? And those of you that have been married, like Billy Graham said it marriage is the closest thing to heaven on earth. You know the dry times? You know the dry times. Do you know? I don't know. Do you? Just wondering. It can just be, oh, it can be hard. You've got to kindle that, right? You've got to light the fire again. You've got to date. Date your wife. Kiss her, right? Just go after her. Like, ah, <laughs> Like, to get spiritual again. Do you remember that with Jesus? Dustin, uh, Dustin, bro, <laughs> come back. Do you remember that with Jesus? I have the, I just almost have the same type of like quickening of my heartbeat. When I think about how Jesus got me and how he pursued me. Like i stalked her, you know, like I just remember the like filling with the Holy spirit and just being like, all I want is you, Jesus. All I want is to carry this book around school with me. I just have it with me. I got it under my desk, I got it on my desk. There's a little break between teachers. I'm underlining my book, this Bible, no underlining, okay? My old Bible, it's new, but just underlined. You had to ununderline things if you liked something again because it was so underlined, right? Uh, worshiping and just spending time by yourself singing and playing the guitar. You learn guitar because you want to worship Jesus. You learn piano. You're at everything at the church. You're serving in any possible way you can. You're just singing and praying and worship is on all the time and you just love Jesus. You just love Jesus so much. And then like marriage sometimes, just like, oh, well, just get the routine going. And you lose that fervor and that fire. And Jesus says, I've got that against you. I've got that against you. I listened to a song. I just Googled it. Like, are there any songs about first love? And I found this 70s or 80s song called First Love by Steve Fry. And you've got to check it out. Like, it is so 70s, 80s. You're just like, it's scary, but it's nice, right? And it says, t- it's Keith Green's style, take me back to first love, to the place where I once was, where my passion was just obeying, and prayer was sweet, the sweetest thing I knew. Everything was possible with you. Take me to the place of my first love with you. Jesus reminds the Ephesians that labor was no substitute for love and purity is no substitute for passion and deeds are no substitute for devotion. Pilgrim's progress lays out for us very clearly what a pattern of a backsliding heart looks like. Very quickly, I want to go through this. John Bunyan wrote The Pilgrim's Progress in jail. And as he wrote, he wrote that we will draw off our thoughts from the remembrance of God, from death, and from the judgment to come. So we begin in, in our Christianity to be like, I don't like to think about the, the hard stuff or the bad stuff. So death and judgment and the Bema Seat judgment and, 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 you know, like, I'm just not think about that so much, or hop over that part when I get there in the Bible. Pilgrim's Progress goes on in its story to say that we cast off by degrees our private duty, such as closet prayer, private devotions, curving our lusts, and watching sorrow for sin. Thirdly, we shun the company of lively and warm friends friends that are following Jesus, friends that are calling us to commitment. All of a sudden, we're not answering that call anymore. (laughs) We're avoiding dinner at that place because I don't want to be challenged or corrected. We grow cold to public duty, such as the hearing, reading of the word, confessing, companionship, and fellowship with God. We pick holes in the coats of the godly and throw out religion for the sake of some infirmities that we've seen. So here's a review of that progress real quick. Our thoughts wander. Our private devotion goes. We don't want to be with Christians who charge us to follow Jesus. We don't want to be a part of public worship. We condemn any and everybody that has anything to do with the church and we try to avoid that. Sixth out of nine, we begin to spend time with ungodly people. Seven, we begin to give way to carnal discourses in secret. Eight, we play with little sins openly. And nine, being hardened, we show ourselves as we are and thus are launched again into the gulf of misery. Unless a miracle of grace prevent it, we are everlastingly going to perish in our own deceivings. So what do we do? What do we do with that? What do we do if our love for Jesus has grown cold? I like what one guy said. Their condition was critical, but not hopeless. Look in verse five. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. First of all, remember. Spend some time like I've done this week. And think about first love. Think about your wife. Just think about that. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, 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 you know, and think about your time with Jesus. Think about how that was so similar. Oh man, oh, I remember the preaching the first time I heard the gospel and, and I just, I just had to follow Jesus. I just had to love Jesus back. He loved me first. Look, oh, spend some time journaling first love. Remember, remember from where you've fallen. Keep thinking about it. Respond to it. Remember when you used to sing, Jesus, I love you, I lay my life before you, how I love you. Remember and repent. Repent means change your mind, change your purpose, and do the chief things again. Repent. David Brainerd, one of my heroes, was a missionary to the Native Americans in the 1740s, and he wrote in his journal, In my morning devotions, my soul was exceedingly melted and bitterly mourned over my exceeding sinfulness and vileness. Have you ever thought that way about your sin before? David Brainerd was a man that repented over his sin. Remember, repent, return, and do the first works. The first works were the key to restoring first love. Return. And as we have the worship team come back up, that's the universal symbol to that we're almost done. Bear with me. Just very, very short here, okay? Consider the prodigal son. You guys know the story, right? Think of the three things that he did. Number one, after leaving his dad and taking his inheritance and going and spending it and spending it all and losing all of the friends that only loved him because of his money, And he's there and he's eating with the pigs. He's about to eat what the pigs eat because he's so hungry. What did he do? He remembered, didn't he? Luke 15, 17 says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. He remembered the riches of his father. When we remember the place where you first fell in love was probably somewhere near the cross of Jesus. I remember being a 15 year old and singing songs about the cross and just loving what Jesus did for me at the cross. Fanny Crosby wrote near the cross and she said at the cross I stood one day love and mercy found me. Near the cross O lamb of God Bring its scenes before me. Remember. Secondly, what did the prodigal son do? He repented. In Luke 15, 18, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He confesses his sin against God and man and just says, whatever it takes, I just, I'm at your mercy. And what did he do? He returned. Luke 15, 20, and he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father said, saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And what did he find there that day? He found a father that was looking down the driveway, waiting for him to get back. He found a father that was running back towards him that fell and that kissed him. We have in the prodigal son a change of mind that resulted in a change of action. He repented. And you know, Jesus says, guys, if you've lost the first love, repent or I'll remove your lampstand. I'll remove your church. I'm not interested in labor without love. I'll remove your church sad thing is, is, the church of Ephesus is no longer there today. It's, there's just rubble all over Ephesus. I'm so honored to be a part of a heritage of a great-grandfather from the Revolutionary War named Titus Lane. He was the first pastor and started the first church in Tennessee, Buffalo Ridge Baptist Church. In the 1700s, he led a heroic charge against the British on the Battle of Kings Mountain. And he started a church, and it is still there to this day. Look it up. Look on Facebook. They are a living, powerful church that is so in love with Jesus and so active for him about making disciples of all nations, Buffalo Ridge Baptist Church in Tennessee. That's our heritage. They hear Jesus saying, love me. And they say, forget everything else. We want to love you, Lord. And he uses that. Amen. Amen. Will you put your things aside and move towards worship with me this morning?